with me to Psalm 19, and this will be the scripture reading for tonight. So, uh, again, Psalm 19, verses 1 through 14, the whole psalm. Here we go. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech, nor are there words whose voices are not heard. Their voice goes out through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and, like a strong man, runs its course with joy. Its rising is from the end of the heavens, and its circuit to the end of them, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is sure, making wise is simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, even much than fine gold. Sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there is great reward. Who can discern his, discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. Let the words of my mouth and the medita- meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Kelsey. So, hello. Uh, special welcome to those of you who are new, maybe came in after the initial welcome. So, this fall, we are going through our identity as a church, who we are. And for the first few weeks, we looked at our primary purpose. So, why do we exist? And that's to make disciples of Jesus Christ who live in light of the gospel. And so, because Jesus came and he saved us by grace, not by anything we could do to earn it, and he will come again to draw us to be with him forever in glory. That should change how we live in the present, right? So if Jesus has come and he will come again, we desire to live very purposeful lives in light of the grace of God manifested through Jesus. And so that's, that's who we are. That's why we exist. And so now what we're doing beginning last week and then uh, heading up to Advent is we're going over the four convictions we have as a church. So what are the four principles that are going to color everything that we do here? What are the things that we're going to put our flag in the ground for? And what we're looking at tonight is truth. Or namely, truth as revealed in God's word. And so, just so you all know, as we head into this, my hope for, and I realize not everybody here maybe holds to the word of God as God's revelation and God's truth. Um, but, you know, for your member here, your tender here, I, my hope for us, for us as a church is to be a church that, that holds to the word of God for the life-giving power that it is. And to trust God's promise that his word is enough to build his church, to save sinners and sanctify, sanctify saints. That's God's promise to us in his word. And so um, it's not going to be, you know, the, the eloquence of whoever's preaching up here. It's not going to be in the excellence of, in, in our worship team, although, of course, we desire that or our programs. It's going to be fundamentally God's word. <laughs> that revives our soul and builds up this church. And so uh, that's one of the things that we're always going to stand on. And so uh, Psalm 19 is a great passage on looking at the Word of God. So each week in this identity series, we're trying to alternate between New Testament and Old, Old Testament passages to show you how all of Scripture fits together. 
And so we're going to look at in Psalm 19, which is about God's revelation to us. We'll just look at this under two headings following the flow of the psalm. And so first we'll look at why do we need words from God? And then second, we'll look at how do God's words actually shape us? Okay, so first, why do we need words from God? And then second, how do God's words actually shape us? Okay, so first, number one, why, why do we need words from God? So you, you see here that the first six verses of Psalm 19, it's talking, about, it's talking about creation, right? So the heavens declare the glory of God, and the sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech, and night to night reveals knowledge. So what the psalmist is saying here is he's saying this is how God speaks to us using speechless speech. So creation doesn't actually talk, right? Okay, we don't have ants on earth where they, they talk, but in a sense, creation reveals to us things about God. Or put another way, um, creation has God's style signature on it. So God is an artist, and creation reflects the signature and style of the artist who created it. And so, so you know this, when you, like, when you look at a painting or you listen to a song, like when you listen to music, you can hear the first few seconds of a song and immediately know who it is because it has the style signature of the artist, right? So you can hear the first few seconds and you go, oh, that's the Beatles, that's Hans Zimmer, that's Nirvana, right? You know it because they each have a style signature. You know, for Kelsey and me, we're about to have a little boy come into the world named Titus and We'll be playing the Lord of the Rings soundtrack each night as he goes to sleep. Okay, so the second greatest story that's ever been told outside of the Bible can be embedded, <laughs> embedded into his heart. Okay, so the, the point is, is, is creation tells us so much about who God is. And so the idea here is like when you look at, I mean, even non-religious people, right, will we'll look at the galaxies and be in awe and wonder. And so like when you when you look at the, the grandeur of the waters and forests and galaxies in the world and, and how breathtaking they are, like how much more breathtaking and beautiful must the God who created them be? Right? When you look at the intricacies of creation, when you look at the humor in creation, what a great architect God must be. How funny must he be? Okay, so th that, that's what the psalmist is getting at. And But in particular, one of the things that this, that, um, David highlights is the goodness of God that you can see in creation. So you see verse 5, he highlights the sun. So the sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, and like a strong man runs its course with joy. So the sun delights to serve its master, right? So it doesn't find doing God's will arduous. So you think, think about like an ancient king, for example. One of the ways that you see the glory of an ancient king or a queen is you don't just look at the king or queen, but you look at the, the adornments of their court. So when you look at when the queen of Sheba, for example, when she visited Solomon, what was she so taken aback by? It wasn't just Solomon's wisdom. She was taken aback by, by the adornments of his court, by how, by how beautiful the palace was, and also she was taken aback by how joyfully the servants served their master. Why? Because happy servants mean... They must have a good master. Unhappy servants must mean they have a terrible master. And so the psalmist is saying is if the sun runs its course with joy, like how, how good, how good must God be when the sun delights to do the will of its master? And so as we look at how God reveals himself to us in his word. And what he's going to do next, in, beginning in verse 7, is talk about how God reveals himself to us in his words. Just a, just a couple reflections on this as we move forward. So 
First, one of the things the psalmist is trying to communicate when he's saying, like, how happy creation is, the reason why the sun has joy in serving its master, the reason why trees are happy being trees, the reason why puppies are happy being puppies is because they're not out of step with their maker, right? Because they're absolutely and perfectly being how God designed them to be. But one of the reasons why humans are so miserable is because we always buck up against God's design for us and we say no. So what the psalmist is doing very subtly is he's saying, do you see how happy creation is and how often unhappy humans are? When you learn to walk in God's good design because he knows what's best for your flourishing, that's when, you're, that's when you become the most happy. That's when you become the most joyful. It's kind of like setting us up for that. But secondly, and here's the main point the psalmist is getting at, because next he's going to move into how God speaks. And so the point here in verses 1 to 6 is, as much as creation can tell you about God, it's not enough. Why? Because you need words. To fully get to know an artist, to fully get to know anybody, you need words, right? You need them to tell you about who they are. And so something for us, especially, you hear this a lot, um, you've always heard it, but especially in our, in our current climate, is oftentimes people like to say things along the lines of, well, you know, I like to think of God like this. Or, yeah, I know the Bible says this, but I like to think of God like that. As opposed to looking at how God has actually revealed himself in his word. And so just to say that, I mean, that's as obnoxious as if I were to, so say I'm talking about Kelsey. And, you know, Kelsey has told me that she doesn't like sailing because she gets sick, right? She, I know that she loves cats. I know that she doesn't like to stay up late because she's told me these things. But if I'm like, well, you know, I like to think of Kelsey as she loves to sail, and she hates cats, and actually she loves to stay up late, right? That's ridiculous, because I'm going against how she's clearly revealed herself. And so that's what the psalmist is saying here, is you need God's words. Like, yes, creation tells you a lot, but fundamentally you need his words as revealed in Scripture, so you can fully know him for who he is. Okay, so that's, that's why we need words. Okay, so second, let's look at how do God's words shape your life? Okay, how, how do God's words shape your life? And we see a few theme, themes in here. And so one of the themes that you see is wisdom. So you see that the commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes in verse 8. And then you see the testimony, all these words, law, testimony, precepts, they're all synonyms to describe the Bible. You see the testimony of the Lord is, is sure making wise the simple. And so what the psalmist is saying here is when you follow God's words, it reflects consummate wisdom. Because God made you, he designed you, and he cares more about you than you do. When you follow his will for your life as revealed in the Bible, that's what brings you into the greatest flourishing. And we, especially in our, in our current culture, this we need to pause here for a second because in our modern Western climate, uh, any authority outside of the self is seen as inherently suspect. So one of the givens that you hear thrown around all the time is no one should tell you how to live, Right? You live how you want to live. And so then what we do is when we hear a voice coming from the outside is we line it up next to our desires and then an authoritative voice telling us how to live. And if our desires aren't congruent with another voice, then what? We're going to go with our desires. And so it happens in the church all the time. Like we, we read through the Bible and we go, well, that looks inconvenient, so I'm not going to do that. Or that looks asinine, so I'm not going to do that because it's, it doesn't go along with my desires. So desires are supreme. 
in our current climate. And so just think about it this way, because are there, are there things in the Bible that are hard to understand? Yes. Are there things in the Bible that makes, make you ask, is this really for my flourishing? Yes. Like, we encourage those types of questions here. But think about it this way. If you were to, well, a lot of you have bought a car, right? And so you buy the car, and in the car, there's what? There's an owner's manual. And the owner's manual will tell you things like, here's the type of fuel you should put in the car. And you should get an oil change every 5,000 miles or so. Now, when you have your car, do you go, well, in the name of individual freedom, I'm going to put water instead of gasoline into the gas tank because that's far cheaper, right? Or I'm not going to go take it in for an oil change every 5,000 miles. I'm going to do it in 20,000 miles because that's far more convenient. No. You follow what the owner, owner's manual says. Because why? Because you know that the owner built the car. The owner knows how, how the car will best function. And so you submit yourself to the authority of the owner's manual, even when it seems inconvenient, even when it seems at great cost to you. And so that, that's what the psalmist is saying here with, with God's word. It always reflects consummate wisdom because, because it's how God made you. And so just as you think about this, there were, I think my, my plea to you, because it's the psalmist's plea to you, is don't be a slave to your cultural moment about what things in the Bible you should accept and what things in the Bible you should reject. Because the winds of culture shift all the time. And different cultures are always saying what we should accept and reject. And so like a you know, prime example of, of today is many, at least in America, view what the Bible says about sex to be absolutely ridiculous. Right? So the idea that you should only give yourself physically and take from somebody else physically only in the context of a committed relationship where you've committed your whole self to person for life. Because this reflects the generosity of God towards us. When he commits himself, he commits himself all the way. Now, many people see, I mean, at best, the Bible's sex ethic as, as laughable. And this isn't a sermon on, on sexuality, but just, just consider this. Because in the first and second century, people also viewed the Bible's sex ethic as regressive, but for different reasons. So in first century Greco-Roman culture, uh, women were incredibly denigrated. Uh, women, female babies were selectively killed. And in, in the context of marriage, I mean, it was, just, it was a given that the man could sleep around with as many women as he wanted, but the wife was expected to be committed only to the man. But then you have Jesus come along, right? And, and then the, the apostle Paul is, is inspired by God. And you have scripture formed, which, which says what? No, if, if a man is married to a woman, then no, he's, he's to love her as Jesus loved, loved the church. So he's committed to her and her alone and to be willing to lay down his life for her. And since every person is made in the image of God, we need to take life seriously. And so it was many believers who, who would rescue babies that were literally thrown on the side of the road. Now, at the time, that was seen as ridiculous, Many of us look at that now and we go, well, yeah, well, of course. But now we have a whole different grid that we put down. Because it's just if you want to be liberated from the, from the confines and shackles of your culture, always go to what God's word says because it reflects consummate wisdom. There are many things God's word says about money, about relationships, about community, right, about how you should go about your career. And at many times it will seem inconvenient, it will seem costly, but you follow it, and it will always lead to greater intimacy with God and nothing but awe and wonder. God's law is always for your good. 
So that's, that's, the, that's the first thing we see, how God's word shapes us. They, they help us live and walk in consummate wisdom. Second, what do God's words do? Uh, they, they revive the soul. And so in verse 7, it says, the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. So do you all know how powerful words are? Some of you do. Right, so, you, so you know the phrase, what is it, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me? That's crap. Let me just say that. So the bruises that you get from sticks and stones will go away, but words can create wounds down to your soul that never go away. I mean, words have caused wars. Words have started divorces. Words have led to suicides. There are few things more powerful than words. But just as words have the power to destroy, they also have the power to build up. Hey, words have healed relationships. Words have given courage, given people courage to do the impossible. As one of my favorite uh, fiction writers, Patrick Rothfuss, put it, he says, just as names have power, words have power. Words can light fires in the minds of men, and words can wring tears from the hardest of hearts. Words have incredible power. And if, if, if humans, if human words have power, how much more power do God's words have? How powerful are God's words? Like when he looked at nothingness before there was anything, he spoke and there was. Light, galaxies, mountains, rivers. There's no gap between God's words and his deeds. His word is his deed. Then when you see Jesus come to earth, like many examples in Mark chapter five is one example where there's a little girl who had died and he, he walks up to her bed and he says, little girl, arise. And his words break death itself. And she gets up. God's words have so much power. And so the question here is, you, you read a lot of words in a given day. You listen to a lot of words in a given day. What are the words that shape your life? Do you, do you, do you even know the words that are shaping your life? Because there are words shaping your life. And it's only God's word that will revive the soul. People go to all kinds of books and podcasts, and those are wonderful things in their place, but they will always have a limited perspective at best. It's only God's word that can revive the soul. So first it revives your soul. How will it? God's word regenerates you. So just as in the first creation, God looked at darkness and nothingness and spoke, and there was light and life. So did God look into your cold, dead heart and speak, and there was light and life. If you're here and you're trusting in Jesus, why? It's because you either heard God's word or you read God's word. First Peter 2, 23 says, you were born again, referring to coming to faith in Jesus Christ, not by perishable seed, but imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. God's word always works through his spirit to, to regenerate souls. And that's not just how you are first regenerated, but it's also how you how you gain life and and your soul is brightened and enlarged in the present like once you are a believer so how do you know how to know god the bible how do you know that god is unconditionally committed to you the bible how do you know that darkness and death is not the final answer to your life the bible how do you know how to process your thoughts and emotions and relationships? The Bible. How do you know how to go about your career? The Bible. 
How do you know anything that's of most importance? The Bible. It's God's words and only God's words that has the power to revive your soul. So just ask yourself, do you, do you treasure God's words in that way? Do you go to God's words in that way? A number of years ago, I think it was around nine years ago or so now, they did a study on the words that Americans, the phrases that Americans most like to hear. And you know what the top three were? I love you. I forgive you. And supper's ready. Supper's ready. I love you. I forgive you. And supper's ready. That is the message of Scripture. I love you. I forgive you. Doesn't matter what you've done. And supper's ready. That's what the new creation's going to be a giant, amazing feast. That's what God's word is. That's what we most need to hear and most want to hear. All right, and then one final theme we see here is the, the sweetness of God's words. So the psalmist says in verse 10, more to be desired are they than gold, even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the drippings of the honeycomb. So I don't know about you, but when you read that, you should kind of tilt your head and ask questions because like it makes sense for the law of God to, for you to respect God's word, right? Or, or assent to God's word. But here the psalmist is saying, more to be desired are they than gold. Like if you had the choice between a mountain of gold and God's word, what would you choose? Sweeter also than honey. The, the psalmist is saying, it's, it's sweet to me. So why is it sweet? Well, first we've already talked about a fair amount, but it's because it's God's word that leads to flourishing. Because God's your maker. Right, so sin will always twist. So while God's word revives the soul, sin destroys the soul. While God's word makes wise the simple, sin makes us fools. Right, while God's word rejoices the heart, sin twists the heart. So God's word always leads us into flourishing. But the reason why God's word is the sweetest is it's because it's fundamentally not a list of rules and not a guidebook or an owner's manual on how to live. Fundamentally, the purpose of God's word is to direct you to a person. And some of you in here may really need to hear this because scripture so many times, either just as you've been reading it unintentionally or it's been used by others just like as a cudgel, right, to beat people over the head. And one of the only ways that can happen is when you think, Scripture is really all about you and the rules you need to follow to live a good life, as opposed to directing you to a person, right, which is its, its root purpose. And so how do we see this in this psalm? Well, note the flow of the psalm. So in the first six verses, it, he talks about the, the grandeur and beauty of God's creation. And then in the next five verses, he goes into the perfection and goodness of God's law, so then he goes and he talks about humans. And what you would expect just following the, the tenor and the flow is for the psalmist to say something like, yay human, yay human beings. But that's not what he says. He says, 
what in verse 12, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. So what he's saying is, I notice in myself and in in humanity that there's a discordance between ourselves and the chorus of God's creation and and the perfection of God's law. And so one of the reasons this psalm is so amazing is because it teaches you how to pray and how to live when you notice in yourself, which you should if you have an honest gaze, the discordance between your own life and the perfection of God's creation in his word. And so what does the psalmist say? In verse 13, he says, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let, that, let, not them, let, let them not have dominion over me. So what he's saying is, you know, he's saying, forgive me. He's saying, keep me from presumptuous sins. Why? Just so that I can have a guilt-free conscience? That's why a lot of Christians think we should be forgiven, just have a guilt-free conscience. No. Why? So that I can be the person that you've always made me to be, a worshiper. That's, that's verse 14, how, how the psalm ends. It says, may the words of my heart and the meditation, may, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. What he's saying is, he's saying, why can I plead for forgiveness and open my mouth to declare God's praises? Because God has pledged to me to no matter what, be my rock. So my shelter in the storms, my firm foothold, no matter what I'm going through, and my redeemer. He will always rescue me from bondage. Most of all, the bondage to my own sin. That's a promise from God. And so that's what the psalmist is clinging to. And the psalmist doesn't know, but we know just how far God went to keep that promise so that we can say, my rock and my redeemer, no matter how we're living on a given day. Why? Because in John chapter 1, we see the word of God, the eternal word of the eternal father, Jesus Christ himself, became a human being. And all throughout Jesus' life, you see him doing everything that this is talking about. He holds to the law of the Lord as perfect. He holds to the testimony of the Lord as sure. He holds to the, to the precepts of, of the Lord as right. Jesus breathed scripture. He clung to scripture when he was suffering. He bled scripture. Literally on the cross, he quoted Psalm 22. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus held his scripture perfectly. And see, in this psalm, it says, in keeping your law, there's great reward. What did Jesus get? Because when Jesus was hung up on a Roman cross, what he experienced to his horror was the rock that he had always known, his shelter in the storm at all times, his eternal father, was no longer there. He had no foothold. Why? Because Jesus was taking what you deserve for your sin to be cast out so that you can be counted as blameless and to be a child of God, so that you can always say, if you're trusting in Jesus, my rock and my redeemer. It's God's covenant promise to you. So just a few reflections as we close here. First is, I don't know what your daily time in the word is like, and it can be hard. 
Okay, so this isn't a sermon on like beating you up if you're not reading and cherishing God's word, but I hope you've seen even just a small glimpse of how necessary and life-giving it is and to, to make it a priority. I, I know a lot of great people, people who aren't believers and believers, and the most joy-filled, like solid people I know are old saints who have meditated on and clung to God's word for years. Is it a regular habit to read God's words, to be shaped by God's words? And if, if you don't really know how to do that, then talk to your community group leader about it. Talk to your discipleship group leader about it. Talk to me about it. And the second thing is, so, is God's word sweet to you? Like, is it sweeter than honey? And a lot of you here, um, you know, members, attenders, a lot of you are very dutiful people. And I love that about you. I mean, you all love to try to, to, to obey God's word. But the psalmist challenges to you, do, you, do you just do it out of duty? Or is it, is it sweet to you? And if it's not, just pray for the Lord to make it sweet to you. Like a concrete example of, of how I saw this play out is so, when you think about God's law, God's word, it's an expression of his character. And so when, when you do God's law, in many ways, you're, 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 reflect, you're, you're doing what gives God joy, right? What, re, what reflects his character. And when you love somebody, you always delight to do the will of the beloved. And one of the, the ways I saw this play out was so our worship leader, Luke, uh, he, at one point of his life, did not, want, did not like cats and never wanted a cat. And then one day he met a very special woman named Sarah. And Sarah loves cats. And, you know, cats make her laugh. Cats enlarge her heart with joy. And I remember sitting with Luke one day, and this was, you know, they were about probably midway through their dating relationship before they got married. And Luke was grinning like a giddy schoolgirl, telling me about how he couldn't wait to surprise Sarah by getting her a cat. And he knew that, you know, if, if they got married, and, and they are married now, that Luke would then have to live with this cat. But Luke delighted to do it. Why? Because it was, an, it was an expression of the will of his beloved. Like, he, what did not at one point give him joy was now giving him joy because he knew it gave Sarah joy. So he's like, I just, I can't wait to see the look on her face when I get her the cat. And, and, and now, you know, you... You go over to his house, and he can't stop talking sweet nothings to his cat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. But, it, but it's great. But that was just like an example to me. <laughs> yeah. Luke, I told you this was coming. Um, but it's just such a very clear picture of how a heart is changed when you delight to do the will of the beloved. And so I, I hope for you, you, like when you follow God's law, even when it's hard, over time it will become sweeter, and it will lead to greater awe and wonder. So let's trust God's word to be the thing that builds this church. And then may our prayer every single day be verse 14. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. Let's go to God in prayer. In creation, 
Uh, thank you so much for how you reveal yourself to us in your words. Help us to cherish your words, to follow your words, and to find them to be what they are uh, for our good and for your glory. Thank you so much for, for Jesus, who makes it possible for us to call you my rock and my redeemer, uh, no matter how poorly we're behaving on a given week. Uh, bring us into greater delight in knowing you. And it's in the name of Jesus we pray.